So we're in, a, we're in a series in the Gospel of Mark. We're in the second week, and last week we were in Mark chapter 1, and we're fast-forwarding a little bit to Mark chapter 5 today. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text for us, and uh, you can read along. This is the Common English Bible. Jesus and his disciples came to the other side of the lake, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs. This, uh, this man lived among the tombs, and no one was ever strong enough to restrain him, even with a chain. He'd been secured many times with, legit, with leg irons sorry, and chains, but he broke the chains and smashed the leg irons. No one was tough enough to control him. Night and day in the tombs and the hills, he would howl and cut himself with stones." When he saw Jesus from far away, he ran and knelt before him, shouting, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded him, Unclean spirit, come out of this man. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He responded, Legion is my name, because we are many. They pleaded with Jesus not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. Send us into the pigs, they begged. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits left the man and went into the pigs. Then the herd of about 2,000 pigs rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. Those who tended the pigs ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who used to be demon-possessed. They saw the very man who'd been filled with so many demons sitting there fully dressed and completely sane, and they were filled with awe. Those who had actually seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man told the others about the pigs. Then they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. While he was climbing into the boat, the one who'd been demon-possessed pleaded with Jesus to let him come along as one of his disciples. But Jesus would not allow it. Go home to your own people, Jesus said. Tell them what the Lord has done for you, how he's shown you mercy. And so the man went away and began to proclaim in the ten cities all that Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Who is this man? Is the question. Not the man, Legion, but Jesus. That's the question Mark is really inviting us to consider. As I shared last Sunday, throughout his gospel, who do we say Jesus is? Uh, who do we need Jesus to be? How do we understand him? How, do we recognize him at work in our own lives? Who's Jesus? So Mark's been asking that question, and he's answering the question with some really incredible stories. If you've been reading along this week in this reading plan that we offered to you, or just if you've read Mark before, um, like I said, we were in Mark 1 last week with Jesus' baptism, and now we're in Mark 5 with this healing or this, uh, this deliverance story. Uh, But along the way, Mark has been telling these other stories that are remarkable. He's had the power to forgive sins. He's expressed that he can heal broken bodies multiple times already. He has the power over forces of nature. He's calmed storms. And now we see he has the power over the forces of evil. So that's kind of what we're going to discuss today, that Jesus has the power to transform lives that have been harmed and even destroyed by evil. We're going to talk about evil today. In fact, real quick, for those with kids, they're talking about demons today, too. I didn't mention it with the kids in the room because 
they're going to probably talk about it in a little bit different way than I will, but you could have some interesting conversation. I see some like, oh my gosh, well, let's go get the kids. Uh, Amy will do it very, uh, in a way that won't, I hopefully, you're not going to have nightmares, I don't think, but you'll have some interesting, I'm sorry, I should have told you earlier, Zach, but uh, it'll be interesting conversations. Um, so Jesus has the power to transform lives that have been harmed and even destroyed by evil. And here's the punchline, that's every single one of us in the room. That's every society on earth. This isn't just a fantastical story of deliverance and the gospel of Mark. This is power at work to transform our lives today. And so I say that, and I just want to recognize uh, the disconnect that that can kind of present, that the conversation on evil, deliverance, demons, those concepts are, can feel very abstract, especially in scientifically-minded very intellectual communities like ours or Seattle. Uh, these are hotly debated conversations amongst Christians and non-Christians. You know, the non-affiliated, non-religious people, people of other faith traditions. Evil is not something we, we entirely agree on or are really aligned on. Like, how does deliverance work? What is evil? You know, is there even such a thing as evil? Do we believe that it's even a real thing? Um, there was a Pew Research study that was published late last year on this topic entitled, In Their Own Words, How Americans Explain Why Bad Things Happen. And the articles, the authors highlighted that this myriad of difficulties confronting our world, the two years long global pandemic that's, been, that's taken upwards of six million lives to this point, um, the rapidly changing climate that is threatening the, the balance of life on earth, um, racial injustice, systemic racism, we could even park the war in Ukraine here for us. These issues have brought renewed relevance to this age-old question, why is there so much suffering and evil in the world today? And if you look at the data from the, the study, which is on the screen here, go ahead and throw it up. Uh, 35% of, this is of 6,500 U.S. adults that were surveyed, 35% of those folks surveyed see suffering as random and nearly inexplicable. Many wrote that life, or use another four-letter word, just happens. Just happens. More than one in ten attribute this misfortune to God. That's interesting, that God is the one who causes this. Sit with that. Your neighbors and friends believe that. Smaller shares touch on the theme of free will, sin, evil, Satan. Some people believe that there is a Satan still. Fate, social systems, still others saw a silver lining in this, describing it as an opportunity for growth and perspective. So I share, I share that because I want to ask you how you think, and I won't do a, like a popcorn thing, but just be thinking for a moment, how do you think about suffering and evil? Like I said, uh, Jesus has power to transform our lives, not just this man from the Gerasene region, but our lives. How do you think about suffering and evil? In your life, in our world, how are you thinking about it? Does your faith and does Jesus have anything to do with this concept? Or is it just, you know, like Depeche Mode once saying, is Jesus your own personal Jesus, someone who hears your prayers, someone who cares? But really, that's kind of who Jesus is you know, to you? Does Jesus have power to confront, transform, and defeat the powers of evil on earth? That's the questions I want to, I think this text is disturbing us with today. It's here in Mark. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament, and it's here, I think, to confront us, disturb us with some of these hard questions. So we'll look at this story today, and as we do, I want to invite us to explore just a couple of aspects of it as they relate to this problem of suffering and evil. I'm not going to try. I don't think it does. I don't think I can't. 
attempt. I would never pretend to attempt to answer every question around this concept. It's a big topic, um, but I hope at least this, light, this text can shed some light on it for us. We're going to look at two things, the complexity of evil, because like I said, it's a, evil is more than just demons and devils. It's really complex and very nuanced, more complex than we actually have ever probably thought about. And then the undoing of it, because it's also very complex, I want to look at the undoing of evil. Jesus has the power to undo evil. How does Jesus do that? So the, the complexity of evil and the undoing of evil, okay? And we'll just kind of trace this text through from top to bottom, so you can definitely have it open if you'd like. So, and the first thing we want to look at is uh, the thing you can't, you can't ignore. I've already mentioned it a few times. is the reality of demon possession. This man, in verse 2 it says that Jesus encounters a man who is possessed by an evil spirit. He has a demonic presence in his life. He's come out of these tombs to meet Jesus. This is actually the third time, in the, or, or fourth time in the Gospel of Mark already, where Jesus encounters a person who's possessed. There's demon possession that's happened in somebody's life, where Jesus encounters somebody already in five chapters. Third or fourth time, I, I, uh, or actually one of 23 different passages in the Gospels, uh, the book of Acts and Revelation, that explicitly talk about demon possession and demons. So right there, uh, even as I say that, I, I would acknowledge that, uh, again, like we, demon possession is not something we tend to casually talk about. Even though it's there in the Bible, it's probably not something you just sit down with your neighbors or your coworkers and just talk, hey, we, guess we talked about church today, demons. You know, like it's like a thing that can feel a little bit awkward at first, or even maybe a little bit regressive, like it's like, you know, this is an old thing. Like it's not really a thing that we believe is happening today. Um, I remember when I was at, in seminary at Princeton Theological Seminary, very erudite seminary. Uh, I was taking a, a, a class in the Gospel of Mark in the Greek. So that tells you how erudite Princeton is. <laughs> like it's not good enough for us to read the English, got to read the Greek. Um, and I remember sitting there and this professor teaching was lecturing one day. And she said something like, um, you know, when we read stories about demon possession, we understand now that ancient people then didn't know how to make sense of their world. And so things like mental illness and physical brokenness, things like bipolar disorder, depression, schizophrenia, they didn't have language. They didn't have a DSM-4. Uh, they didn't have language for that. So they used the language of demon possession for those things. She said that. And I never forget a friend of mine. He was a student, uh, an exchange student from Ken- Kenya, and he raised his hand and he said to, excuse me, professor, I don't mean disrespect here, but I have a question. Are you saying that demons do not exist? And she said, well, no, not exactly. The accounts, what I'm saying is the accounts that we have them in the New Testament are at best imperfect. And the language of the Bible is often flawed and inexact. And uh, you could just see my friend bristling, like he's just bristling, like, oh, he wanted, so he raises his hand again, and he's like, very humble and gracious. And he said, you know, this thing that's stuck with me ever since. Well, that's interesting, because it feels to me as if you're invalidating not only my experience, but the experience of the entire global church, that uh, I've not only believed in demons, but I have cast out demons myself. And like you can right now, you could hear a pin drop in that room. I mean, it was dead silent. So what I'm saying is we have to be careful. Just because we haven't experienced things like this doesn't mean they're not true. 
Because when it comes to the Bible, the Bible has this very nuanced and profoundly uh, realistic perspective of evil. On the one hand, it says evil is real. There is a real personal presence of evil according to Scripture. There's this, the, the devil, the Satan. That's how the Bible talks about this presence. And that force, as, as John 10.10 10 articulates to us, is out to steal, kill, and destroy our lives. To, in other words, cause suffering and pain for individuals, for societies, for the world. It's real, it's present, and it's dangerous. That's what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, Scripture is also very clear, and hear me on this, that just because something is wrong in our world or in your life, uh, that demons are somehow behind it. Uh, the devil is not, in other words, under every rock and behind every bush. There's a couple chapters earlier in Mark where Jesus meets a man who's paralyzed, if you remember that story, and he heals this man. It says nothing about demons in that passage. Just after this story, there's a woman who comes out to Jesus. She's in a crowd, and she's healed. She's been bleeding for about 12 years. She suffered uh, from something, and it says in the text that she endured much under the care of many doctors and had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. Nothing about demons in there. It says something about a broken healthcare system. It says something about how people have not have failed in their calling to care for her well. What's more, if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew 4, 24, and this is it's a parallel text to this one we're in, you read that news about Jesus had spread, and people had brought to him those who were afflicted, suffering from various diseases, intense pains, epileptics, paralytics, and even the demon-possessed. Which is really interesting if you think about it, because it seems that the Bible is articulating or differentiating between demon possession and disease. That people in the ancient Near East, though they didn't have a DSM-4, understood things like mental illness, understood the difference between physical illness and demon possession. Indeed, the Bible is far more nuanced and far more multidimensional than even our own view of the world at times. It, it refuses to ever reduce our problems to a single plane, and, and it never has a default mode for saying that something we're suffering from is purely physiological, purely psychological, purely moral, absolutely spiritual. It's, it's far more nuanced and complex than that. There's a complexity to evil, to evil and suffering that transcends our categories of understanding is what I'm trying to say. And what's more, uh, the way evil works in our lives and our world is profoundly complex as well. I think sometimes we think that evil, the way evil works, is sort of like Ghostbusters, you know? You go to sleep one night, you wake up, and you're possessed. Or like it's a horror movie. It's going to grab you, you know, like I worked at a summer camp near Yakima, um, Camp Dudley. Did you ever hear of Camp Dudley, YMCA camp? It's where they filmed Friday the 13th. That's interesting. <laughs> like, tell your cabin that Friday the 13th was filmed at your, and that's going to scare the, that's going to scare your kids. And uh, I'm like, why are you filming a horror movie at this camp? Makes no sense to me. And so that's, but that's not how evil really works. Like, they, yeah, I know, there's, that's a whole rabbit trail I could go down. But we need to remember that um, the story of the man in the tombs is part of a much larger story of humanity, a story that begins all the way back in Genesis, okay? Go with me here. It's a story that we discovered the first people, when they're made, have a thriving relationship with one another, with God, with creation, with their own bodies, with their vocations, with their minds, their hearts, their souls. Everything is flourishing because everything is right, right? 
They're flourishing as people. The world is flourishing. The word the Bible uses to describe that flourishing, not right there, but later, is this word that you've heard me talk about if you've been around me for very long, this Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that presents the state, a state of foolish flourishing in every dimension. It's body, soul, spirit, mind, will, emotions, physical, spiritual, relational. Everything is, is whole because everything's right. Um, everything's thriving because everything's kind of woven and working together. And the image right there when I say that word woven, the image you might have heard me use to describe this is this image of a, a fabric or a tapestry. Go ahead and throw that image up there, Maj. Of that. There it is. This is a, if you were on Zoom with us any time, you probably saw this behind me. It's in our, it's in our dining room. This is a, a Bolivian Oyo, and it's particularly, you find it in Aymara and Quechua communities in the Andean region of Bolivia. Um, and this is a, a, it's really not a tapestry so much as, is, as it is a, a, a cloth that women will use to carry things on their back, uh, groceries, their children. This is like one of those REI backpacks, you know, this is what this is. Um, so it's a piece of woven cloth, and it's really a picture of shalom because this awayo consists of, if you look closely at it, and you might be able to see it, in innumerable threads. It's all woven together, probably on a loom, but they're interlaced and interwoven, so much so that when it's woven together, the interlacing of these thousands of threads, you not only end up with something beautiful, it's really beautiful, but also something useful, something that covers, something that fits, something that holds. You think of uh, somebody carrying their child in this. It's wool. It, it, I mean, just protection, comfort, safety. It, it's something that delights. It's a, it's a delightful. It's been on our wall for 20 years now, and I deli- just delightful. Um, and our lives are meant to be the same way. God made our lives and our communities and our world to be the same way. We're interwoven, our different relationships, our vocations, where we live, or who we live with, our families. Sometimes our families don't feel like shalom, and, you know, that's Okay. Our relationship to God, ourselves, creation, we're called to seek the peace of the city, the shalom of the city, to pray for the city. This is Jeremiah 29, 7 that you hear me talk about all the time. This is the vision God has given us for the world in which we live, in our lives. But the reality is, that's not the way things are, right? Right in Genesis again, Genesis chapter 3, end of chapter 2, we meet an enemy, the Satan. And the Satan's job, to put it in a nutshell, his sole objective is to pull all those threads of this beautiful tapestry apart. We think of him, or if it's even him, but we think of the Satan with horns and a pitchfork and like, I'm going to get you. I just think of him as a little mischievous, like pulling threads out of like a piece of fabric or if you have a thread loose on your pants and you just, I had one yesterday, I was pulling it out. I'm like, oh, that's going to ruin those because it just keeps going and going. I mean, the Satan is like that, just pulling threads of our lives apart. Um, the destruction of shalom, the unraveled, comprehensive unraveling of our world, physically, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, environmentally, all of that. The devil just wants to undo God's work. This is what the Satan's out to do and what evil really does in our lives. And we see this in this man in Mark 5 now. If you go back to Mark 5, look at him. He's naked, so he's lost his human dignity. He's cut off from his community and society. He's living in isolation amongst some tombs in a graveyard. He has no vocation, no way to contribute to, this is what vocation is, a way to contribute to the flourishing of the society. He has no vocation. He's not permitted to have a vocation. He's been shackled and chained by his own community, it seems, which is interesting. We'll talk about this. So he's been disenfranchised, to use words like that. He's been deprived of his human rights. 
His mind, his body, his, his, his soul are suffering. He's, he's cutting himself with stones. He's physically disfigured. He is the picture in the New Testament of the unraveling of, Shal- of Shalom. Evil is quite literally unraveling this man's life, day in, day out. And it's key as, as we look at his life and think about our lives that we recognize this unraveling doesn't just happen overnight. Like I said, this is not an immediate collapse, and nor was it just one thing or one factor in his life. It's a comprehensive thing. As each thread is pulled out, so is another tugged, so to speak. You don't know how they're connected sometimes. If you go to that Ohio, sometimes they'll be connected in different ways that you didn't understand. You pull one thread out, and it starts to pull in this thread, and the whole thing starts to fall apart. You're like, whoa, what just happened? That's how we can understand the, the loss of shalom, the unraveling. We are woven beings, and we are woven communities, just to move this into a larger framework for us. This man is not an extraordinary individual. He's not just some poor lost soul that we might see on the side of the road by the freeway exit, just living on the tombs. He is not exceptional. He's part of a community, like I said. And after this man's delivered, we'll talk about this in a moment, Jesus sends him back to his community. Did you hear that at the end of the text? To be the first missionary, the first witness of the entire gospel. He's the first one. That's fascinating. He had a community. He had friends and neighbors. He has colleagues and coworkers. Maybe he used to have a job and has lost that work. He might have had a community of faith, not a church because churches weren't a thing yet, but a community of faith. We can think of him like that. Think of the ways in which he was cut off and the ways in which his life might be like our life. I know you, if you've been part of our community meal, you might have experienced this, and maybe you haven't, but you talk to people in unhoused communities, unhoused situations, and you hear their stories. They're not that different than yours. Lost my job, was living in my car, was cold. You know, the unraveling of shalom starts to make sense to you if you start spending time with people in that community. Um, the loss of shalom, the way he's been cut off, the unraveling of his life, his unraveling is their unraveling. Do you hear what I'm saying? This is what African theologians call Ubuntu. Uh, Desmond Tutu, who just passed away earlier this year, uh, he talks about this a lot in his theology. It has to do with what it truly means to be human. Uh, Ubuntu refers to, it's their version of shalom, he, it refers to this interwoven of, uh, of all people in all societies. Here's a quote from Tutu where he says, A person is only a person through other persons, since my humanity is inextricably bound up, or you could say woven into yours. We're not isolated individuals. There's no such thing. And so now you can kind of see the reality and the complexity of evil, right? It's real, and, and it's very complex. We are woven beings. And so the question is, uh, what does Jesus do about that? How does he address the reality and the complexity of evil in our lives? Because he has to do something, right? Like that Depeche Mode song is super depressing. Well, I mean, Depeche Mode's a little depressing, but, um, and I'm I'm a Gen Xer, so if you don't know who Depeche Mode is, I'm sorry. But like, it's like, there, there must be more to Jesus than that, right? He must have more power than just that. And that's really the crux of the story. Jesus does something about this. He deliberately, if you read the gospel story, deliberately leaves the region of Galilee, heads across the Sea of Galilee to this region of the Gerasenes for one reason, one day, one moment, one person, one community, and then takes off immediately afterwards. He, does, he never returns. 
It's like he almost saw this guy and his community and the brokenness of them from far off and said, I got to go there tomorrow. That's my next stop. Jesus has an intentional, he moves intentionally toward them, if is what I'm trying to say. He's there to confront the devil, to undo the evil in this man's life that's unraveling his life, his community, the, the evil that's ripping apart their shalom. Jesus will have none of it. He's a God of wholeness. He's about wholeness, God's wholeness, God's flourishing, and he's there to restore that to this man's life in this world that we're in. And so what does Jesus do? Let's look at that for a few minutes here. Uh, how does Jesus respond to the man who comes out to him from the tombs to greet him, and how does he restore him to his wholeness? This is kind of point to the, un- uh, the undoing of evil. Notice in verse 6, it says the man, when he saw Jesus, ran out to him, knelt down before him, cried out to him, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. Because apparently Jesus had already commanded this evil spirit that he perceived to come out of the man. So Jesus, I love how Jesus responds to this man. He doesn't go all exorcist on the guy. You know, we think of the undoing of evil, deliverance, like exorcist, the movie. Or like uh, he doesn't get his proton pack out like Ghostbusters. And you can tell I love Ghostbusters because I've already quoted Ghostbusters twice, but he doesn't do that. He asks a question. And I love when God asks questions. And he asks a very simple question, what is your name? That's all Jesus says in this text. What is your name? It's a simple and a really profound question since in the Bible, in, in much of the ancient world, a name is far more than just a name. Uh, it expressed the core of a person's identity. And so this, to ask someone's name is to ask for more than just a proper introduction. This is not Jesus just getting on a first-name basis with a demon so he can smack him down. You know, it's not about that. This is what this is about. There's one, only one other time in the Bible, old and new, where God stops to ask somebody their name. Isn't that interesting? And that's the story of Jacob. And if you remember this story, it's Genesis 32. You don't need to turn there. I'll kind of... Um, summarize it. Jacob is the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. So he's going to become one of the patriarchs of the Bible. He's a big deal, right? But before he becomes that big deal, he has to kind of go through his own process of deliverance, if you will, his own transformation process. And uh, like this man in the tombs, he had to be changed fundamentally, body, soul, and spirit, physically, emotionally, psychologically. Um, And his transformation, it, it wasn't the result of a sinner's prayer. It wasn't an altar call at church, as good as those things are. It, it was a result of an all-night wrestling match between he and God, through which God leaves Jacob with a limp. If you remember this story. A limp that is sort of symbolic of Jacob's brokenness, right? He, he, he's recognizing that he's a broken man. Um, and also the power of God at work in his life. He needed God to touch his life in a different way, to cause transformation in a way that Jacob, with his pedigree, he just couldn't be this man that God called him to be without God's touch. And so this limp, this symbol of God's touch, it's connected to the question that God asks, what is your name? Which is another way to say, it's only when Jacob is able to answer the question, Jacob, that he experiences the miracle of change. I'll say that again. It's only when Jacob can answer the question, my name is Jacob, that he begins to experience the, the miracle of change. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, we see clearly in the life of Jacob, he avoids using his name. He's pretended to be someone else. He's lied. He's cheated. His name means cheat or deceiver or heel grabber. Remember this? 
in his life. He's been cheating, deceiving his whole life. He's cheated his father. He's deceived his father-in-law. He's deceived his, he's, he's cheated his brother. I mean, he's cheated pretty much everybody in his life. He's lived off of trickery and deceit much of his life. And so this turning point in his life begins only when he genuinely faces up to his name. I'm the deceiver. I'm the cheat. I'm the one who's cheated my whole family out of their inheritance. I'm the one who's cheated to get my way in life. I'm the one who's cheated to get myself here today. Um, God's question, are you hearing this? What is your name is connected to him saying, I'm Jacob. This is how I've been living. This is how I've been rolling. This is who I've become. I'm not particularly proud of it. This is what's afflicting me. I've got a deep sense of shame with who I am. I can't even say who I am. My relationships, my community, my family are completely falling apart. And you just see how significant that moment is for Jacob to be able to say, this is what's going on. This is, this is like an A group. This is the real stuff. This is my moment of just total sobriety. I am completely messed up. And in the same way as Jesus is seeking to work transformation in this man in the tomb's life, who comes out to him, the one who we like to call the demoniac, notice the scripture does not call him the garrison demoniac. He's the man possessed by demons, which means he has a name. He just doesn't know his name. He's lost a sense of his name. He responds, our name is Legion. Which is another way of saying that the chaos in my life is so great. A legion is a, a Roman garrison. It's a Roman, uh, uh, what's the word? Not garrison, because that's the place they're from. Like a, I wasn't in the military. It's a Roman group of soldiers, about 5,000 soldiers. So it's, it's a, this legion, it's a way of expressing there's so much chaos in my life. I don't even know who I am anymore. There's so much brokenness in my community, my life, my my being that I've lost a sense of identity. Uh, remember, in the ancient Near East, the, the, the name of a person expresses the core of their identity. This means identity has been twisted and torn. And so it's so wrapped up with his brokenness, his demons, so to speak, that all he can say is, my name is Legion, because we are many. Jesus, do you really want to know what's going on in my life? You know, we ask the question sometimes, how are you doing? And maybe you pause, like, do you really want to know? I don't know. I mean, if I really told you, you might not stand here in a couple minutes because it, there's a lot, you know. A lot of us have been living that this last year. Dr. Yolanda Pierce, she's a theologian. Uh, actually, I was telling Silas, <laughs> was at Princeton Seminary when I was there. I just didn't know her, but uh, she's now the professor and dean at Howard uh, University of School of Divinity. She, her work and writing and research focuses on the relationship or the intersection between faith, race, and gender. And she's written a lot on this story. Uh, I, I imagine she was in that Mark class with me. Uh, I don't remember. But um, she has this interesting insight about this man's response. She says that when this man answers that his name is Legion, the reader knows that not only has he forgotten his name, but also his identity has become his demon-possessed condition. Uh, she goes on to say this, that using this military language, this man points to the various conflicts and inner turmoil that so afflicted him that he'd been shackled in chains and forced to live apart from his community. These inner demons were so great in number, they're like a Roman military force, a legion encamped within his soul. 
so that when the garrison answers that his name is Legion, we know this is a man who's lost everything. He's lost his identity. He's lost his family story. He's lost his true name. Remember, a name expresses the core of who you are. I love that insight. And then she goes on to say this thing. Go ahead and put this quote up. She invites us to think about what a legion is in our life. And she says, we're invited by this text to name our fears, our sins, our troubled interior places, along with naming the structural sins, injustices, oppressions that create broken bodies and fractured minds, dehumanize, obscure identities. When Jesus asks the garrison, what is your name? He begins the first step in the healing process, naming that which has caused harm. Naming that which has caused harm. The first step in the work of healing, reconciliation, restoration, she says, is to name names. The first step in healing, restoration, reconciliation, is to name names. Naming that which has caused harm. Now think of that for a moment in the frame of your life. What are your fears right now? What are, your, what are you sitting in? What's his sins? I name sin like, ooh. Think of your life right now. What's not whole for you? If you think of that shalom image a little bit. What's a thread that's kind of dangling out there? And you're like, man, if I tug on that too hard, I'm worried. Something might fall apart. It may not be like a legion, you know, but it might be no less troubling to you. It could be places of injustice and oppression that trouble your soul. I was talking to somebody the other day about this war in Ukraine and just bringing so much weight to their life. A deeply empathetic person, places of brokenness, things in our city that you see. You see homeless people, homeless communities, and you feel just, you feel hurt. Part of the healing of our lives and our deliverance from the power of evil is to name the things that are keeping us away from God's shalom, that are keeping us in bondage keeping us back from being the people of God, the people God created us to be. And we can also think of this naming on a corporate level. I named some things, but think, for instance, when it comes to the evil of racism. You know, we talked last week about, we shared uh, an update on our Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation, and that our staff is starting to go through what's called the Roadmap to Reconciliation as we kind of prepare to introduce this work to the whole church. Um, This is the work of Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil, And uh, that'll happen later this year. And she says that one of the initial steps on that work, that roadmap, is the what she calls a catalytic event. And here's how she defines that. A catalytic event is often painful but necessary. Sorry, catalytic events are the often painful but necessary experiences that happen to individuals and organizations that serve to jumpstart the reconciliation process, that force us out of our spaces of comfort and into new spaces where growth and transformation can happen. So a catalytic event, you think of a catalyst, if you went to, took chemistry, it's just the thing that gets the thing started, right? So our staff has been thinking about this question together. What's been a catalytic event for the Bethany staff across all six locations? What's a thing that's shaking us up, if you will? What's a thing that's maybe jump-starting our journey in this work? What we're naming that, if you're with me here, that's stirring us up, that's, that's our why for the work of reconciliation. It's good work, but what's why are we engaged in as a church is a question we're asking. 
And the particular catalytic event that the Bethany staff this week, as we met and talked through, was actually a visit by a pastor named Daniel Hill back in 2019. Some of you are new to Bethany, so you didn't hear Daniel Hill's talk, but he came in 2019 before the pandemic started, spoke to the whole church the day prior, spoke, or earlier in the day, spoke to our staff. And he'd been, you know, invited to, to deliver this talk on our ministry of racial justice and reconciliation, which was really just beginning to emerge. It's grown uh, much more in the last couple of years with the hiring of Taylor Greer. Um, David Leong came and visited after him and really framed some things out for us. You can get all those talks on our website. But in the early stages, we just invited several speakers to come, including Dr. Brenda and Daniel Hill. And I think Romanita Overstreet, Harrison Overstreet came as well. And he spoke to our staff and he shared with us the challenge. He's a white pastor. The challenge and the difficulty that staff of color, he's been in these spaces before, like ours, where churches are starting the work. The challenge that staff of color in these spaces face in churches like Bethany, communities of faith like Bethany, that are majority white. He shared from his experience of being at work in this work before, working alongside black, Asian, Latino, other communities, uh, pastors of color, the pain that they've experienced around racial justice and reconciliation. Uh, in their communities of faith, their, isol- their sense of isolation, their sense of loneliness, their marginalization, even the sense of fatigue, because if the conversation isn't started by them or carried by them, it often doesn't happen. So there's a weariness. And he shared that. I don't remember his exact words, but that was a gut punch to our staff. We didn't feel it immediately, but it was definitely a gut punch, just naming the truth. This, he could see, he didn't know us. This, I can see this happening in this room. We're in the chapel over at Green Lake. I can see this happening in this room right now. I see some leaning in, some leaning out, some that aren't sure they even belong. And uh, I don't think any of us really realized in the moment that that was a catalytic event. I remember sitting there feeling the weight of the truth. Um, but it was really later as our, our staff of color and, and then the, the group that's been the L team really reflected on this experience this last year, they, they expressed this is our catalytic event, or at least one of them. A moment in which not everything was made right, but it was a jump start, if you will. Because in that moment of truth, something that had been living under the surface of our staff culture within our church that was hidden from us, was brought out into the light of God, where God can do with it what only God can do with things that have been in the dark, bring healing and restoration. So you hear what I'm saying. This is just a small example. The first step in the work of healing, reconciliation, restoration is just naming names, bringing the things out that are in the dark, that are very challenging to us into the light of God. And Jesus so badly wants to do that with us. He's not asking this demon-possessed man to introduce himself. He's asking the man to go into his life and say, who are you? Who are you? With gentleness and with care. um, Because he wants to heal our lives, to heal communities like ours, to heal our families, um, to heal those who've been harmed as well as those who've caused harm. God is about healing for all people. And, and so the question I guess I'd like to leave you with, us with is, would you let him heal you? Would we let Jesus heal us as a community? 
It's a little scary, like I shared that story of Daniel Hill visiting. It's a little scary to have those conversations in our staff, you know, because you're naming places where you might have failed. You're naming places where you might have felt hurt. Um, we got to trust that God wants to heal us. You do with your kids. You do with your spouse. You got to trust that God wants to heal that relationship. God wants to heal your life. Naming is about restoring. And so that's where I want to land this morning. I mean, this man, you see him fully healed at the end there. And you see, it's interesting, like, the last thing Jesus does, I'll mention, is he sends him back into his community. I mean, he wants to go with Jesus, right? You get me? This community doesn't get me. I want to be one of your disciples. And this is just like Jesus. No, I want you to go home. I want you to tell your own people about all that God's done for you. Because uh, Jesus, the enemy of evil, the God of wholeness, wants to redeem and restore the world. And so there's a community back there that needs to hear the gospel. And this man has had a particular experience of it. And he becomes the first missionary in the entire New Testament. So just because we recognize our own brokenness doesn't mean it's over. We're engaged in communities where that healing and brokenness, healing and brokenness needs to continue. And so might we be people who come out of the tombs and uh, encounter Jesus, be transformed by Jesus in our own lives, and then might we allow Jesus to send us back or send us into spaces that where further healing might need to happen. Uh, might we be sort of possessed by courage? You know, this man's possessed by, might we be possessed by courage? Okay, God, I'm going to go. I'm going to say something. I'm going to be here for this work because I know you're good. So I laid a lot on us. <laughs> Kids are going to be coming back. They, like I said, talked a bit about a similar topic. And I realized in even talking about it, we're bringing up things that are uncomfortable. I'm inviting you to think about dark places in your life. But I believe in a God of light and love. What Amy and I talked about is, you know, that John verse where Jesus says, or John says about Jesus, you know, the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness can over, cannot overcome the light of God. God's light is pure. It's infinite. Um, and so I want to leave us with that thought. You know, the light of God in our lives will heal us all. Let's pray. Well, God, we, uh, we open your text. We feel confronted by it. We feel challenged by it. Um, we might even feel the weight of it. Um, not even sure with this man who came out to you, Jesus, if he just felt desperate and he'd heard other stories about you and this is his last desperate attempt. Some of us in the room, God, might feel a little like that, like desperate. We're not sure you're doing anything, God. Our lives are even in the world. 
I also get this picture of this man who clearly had you at work in his heart, you know, the naming of names, inviting him to name himself, to identify himself. I just so badly want to know his name, God. But we believe, God, you did. You, you learned his name. We believe that's your heart for us, God, that you want to connect him with our hearts today and heal these places within us that are deeply broken and hurt so deeply we may not even know them or name, be able to name them yet. That's the place in which you want to work. So would you reveal to us in these moments of, final moments of worship, God, in the, in the week to come, the places where you want to work, where your spirit wants to enter? And would you give us that courage, God, like I just mentioned, to step out from the tombs of our lives in faith toward you and trust you, Lord. We trust you now with our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.